I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. Adam Tooze is our rat-a-tat talker on the tightrope, our English-American historian of this age of waking nightmares. Pandemic, megastorms, migration, inflation, grain war, energy war, war war in Ukraine. Adam Tooze is our polymath in what he has just decided to call the polycrisis. The poly part refers not just to many crises, but to the variety of shapes and sizes and origin stories that come with the disruption. Together, they are transforming the world faster now than ever in history, he says. But they are not together, meaning that no common remedy will treat them. One more key thing about the poly crisis, Adam Tooze will tell you, is that nobody really has a handle on this monster. Not the bankers or the military men or the experts, not even Adam Tooze. It's overwhelming for sure. It's not something I made up. It was out there. It's a found concept. Yep. Things got messy in Europe around 2014, 15, 16, where you had the first iteration of the Ukraine crisis. You had the Syrian refugee crisis. You had the Greek debt crisis all boiling up at the same time. Populism, ultimately Brexit, Trump, the whole works. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting that people should be using this capacious idea that characterizes the present precisely in terms of the variety of different challenges. Mm. Already in the early 1990s, the variety of challenges that come from the, you know, the overwhelming impact of humanity on the global environment. So that's, that's where it comes from. And it, it does indeed leave what I think feeling overwhelmed, I think the difficulty of maintaining a realist stance in the current moment. And that's, surely a problem which we come back to over and over again. Yep. What is it realistic to expect and what not? And what can we rule out? Is there anything we can rule out? What is it un unrealistic to propose? Most of the solutions that seem adequate to the scale of the challenges that we face are extraordinarily radical. Are any of those realistic? You know, if you remember back to the, the race for the nomination, it was remarkable, right, with all the candidates outbidding each other with their climate promises and Bernie coming up with the biggest one of all, which by most people's lights is actually the only realistic one. And that was about $10 trillion. So, you know, it's that reality, I think, which the concept, you know, forces us to face. And um, it doesn't provide any real answers. That's part of, as it were, the characterization that it delivers is precisely this state where we're no longer confident that we know what the handle is. Can I say... And not in jest, it sounds something like the condition of the internet. Loose talk, hyperspeed, are these mm. things related? Is the polycrisis something of a digital symptom? I don't know whether it's digital exactly, but I certainly think it has something to do with a, a kind of rather overgrown capacity to diagnose, uh, you know, certainly mm. compared to not perhaps in relation to the problems out there, which I think we still scramble after all the time, but certainly compared to our ability to not devise technical solutions, because we're pretty good at that too, but collectively agree to implement any of them. Yep. That's, I think, where the real difficulty is. Politics, in other words, but not in a pejorative sense of, oh, if we could just do away with politics. That is a very naive and frankly not a very helpful position at all. But in the more serious sense that actually implementing any of these decisions involves huge investments, huge commitments. And so they quite rightly require collective agreement by whatever institutions we have for doing that. And that takes time. I read you and your chart book for clues about the eternal question, how to follow the money. And I wanted to ask you, what do the bankers know? They're in not much better shape than we are. Wow. In fact, the polycrisis term has been quite widely adopted on their side of the fence, if you like. 
I mean, I realized things were really getting serious when Larry Summers picked it up. <laughs> and yeah. You realize at that point it's turtles all the way down. You know, there's no obviously like constraining actual real common sense out there that, you know, the, the serious people, the very important people somehow have a handle on that the rest of us don't. I think they're facing all of the same problems. And, you know, in their case, of course, it's terrifying because... Because if you're a serious fund manager, right, you're investing, you know, the pension funds of a of a public pension system, or you know, clients' money that is some of which has been borrowed and then needs to be repaid. You know, the the risks for those folks are are huge. Of course, the profits, the upside is huge too, and they've been used to making good profits. No reason to shed any tears for them, but certainly their the cognitive problem is the same, and it's very deep. Uh, they don't know either. Yeah, and the feeling that the world is out of control runs very deep. You describe this polycrisis leading not so much toward a single calamitous climax, but to ever-worsening bad times. Apply that, for one example, to this growing sense, or the, the meme we hear in America, that this country is in a civil war state of mind. Yeah, America does strike me as being in a particularly bad shape. I mean, amongst the countries that we generally associate America with, you know, the advanced economies, shall we say, or the liberal democracies or whatever, I don't think there's any doubt that America's condition is peculiarly bad. We only have to remember back to 2020 in the state that we were all in at that moment. I mean, obviously, I'm self-identified progressive, liberal, leftist, you know, but in fairness, I think the people on the other side of the political divide in the United States feel similarly anxious, worried about you know the way in which they see the country developing and the degree of polarization, um, the un- extraordinarily unconstructive relations between the two parties that dominate the American system, the creaky ancient constitution, the checks and balances kind of gone mad, the influence of money on American politics, the toxic media scene. I mean, one could go on and on and on. I mean, all of this, America is kind of, you know, in an extreme corner of a spectrum of of options. And if you compare it with a Germany or a France or a Spain or a Japan or a South Korea, um, it's in much worse shape than any of them in terms of the functioning of its polity and its ability to make collective decisions. It clearly is. And it's it's hugely worrying for everyone, because by which I mean everyone in that kind of group, because America remains the most powerful player on the global stage. Yeah, I read you in, in the Financial Times, and the comments are always interesting. Somebody wrote, apropos your mm-hmm. polycrisis, if America cannot get its act together, the rest of the world is toast because it is the only nation capable of global leadership. Now I disagree with Christ. I know, we're used to that boasting, yeah. and yet it leaves us in a terrible, terrible spot. Yeah, that I think is fundamentally misleading. I mean, you know, it'd be really helpful if America could get its act together. But, you know, that's just not true. I don't think that's a helpful way of thinking about this problem at all. And that was one of the sort of hubristic notions with which the Biden team took office in, the, in early 2021, and they quite rapidly backed away from it, in, to their credit. Um, But if you take the issue of climate politics, for instance, global climate politics is perfectly capable of carrying on, indeed has, in the absence of the United States. And America is a relatively small part now of that global problem. Not historically. Obviously, America's legacy contribution is huge. It's the largest of all the countries in the world. If we allocate the carbon out there in the atmosphere by country, then America's share is the biggest. But it's been rapidly caught by China. 
And in terms of, you know, moderating future emissions, China is overwhelmingly the largest piece of the puzzle. And the future growth is all in the big emerging markets and developing economies, first and foremost, of course, India. So, in fact, without them and America's contribution as the contribution of the Europeans, for instance, is facilitative, really, and cooperative and doing their bit and mobilizing the resources at their disposal, technology and capital and so on to crucially compensate low-income countries for the damages that they're going to suffer as a result of the climate change to which they have contributed virtually nothing. And so that is their role, not this sort of aggressive posture of leadership so much as, you know, being cooperative players. And then to, you know, Kerry's credit at Glasgow, that's kind of the role that he was performing and we'll see what happens at the, the upcoming COP. The one area in which America is absolutely dominant is military power. That's really its singular standout position. And then you could cite the dollar next, which plays an absolutely key role in large parts of the world economy, but not everywhere. So those are the two areas where unambiguously America's position is key. About China, Adam, too, as you write that the unofficial U.S. Cold War with China has been shaped by improvisation, makeshift innovation, and crisis fighting. But can one really say that the Biden administration the Chinese, Putin's regime are crisis fighting? Are they not escalating? Yeah. And let me just add your words. It's like the classic Cold War, but only worse, because everyone feels under truly existential pressure and has a sense of the clock ticking. If nobody believes confidently that they have time on their side and who has that luxury in the age of polycrisis, it makes for a very dangerous situation indeed. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two different elements here, right? The sort of shorthand that I use to describe modern history as a history of crisis fighting was trying to do justice to the fact that we've avoided World War III so far and global absolute poverty has gone down considerably. And so there is a story here, undeniably, I think, of something that one, broadly speaking, has to call progress. It's a complicated notion and it's probably not sustainable, but the reality of global development over the last well, it's a half century, at least much longer than that, really, if you take a longer historical view, is one of the forward march of life expectancy, falling rates of infant mortality, and so on and so forth, and the avoidance of another Great Depression um, or World War III. Right? So that's the one side of the story. The other side of the story is that we're now clearly in a very alarming situation. And so people quite rightly kind of called me out for providing too optimistic a view and said, well, you know, Adam, is it really true that anyone's crisis fighting here? So the way you defend that, I think, would be to say, well, if you ask the Russians or the Chinese or indeed the Americans, they all actually think they're on the defensive. In other words, you know, the Americans think they're warding off the threat from an authoritarian Chinese mm. regime in the aggression of Putin. Russia, Putin believes and I think we have to like grant him this, that his expansionism is necessary because he's in a hostile world. And he understands himself to be in a hostile world as a result of the expansion of NATO. Does that justify what he does? Absolutely, it doesn't. Does it actually even causally explain why he took the wager on starting the war? No, to my mind, it doesn't. But clearly, Moscow feels itself beleaguered. And the same goes for the Chinese. And this is not untypical of international relations. You could say the same thing about the outbreak of World War I. All of the key players there felt that they were, in a sense, on the defensive and had to, you know, points to prove through what then turned out to be, and this is where the story flips, quite aggressive action. But that dialectic between defensiveness and aggression, you know, it's not just a cliche of psychology, it's also one of the ways in which, you know, entire schools of international relations theory make sense of the tendency towards conflict in the international system. It's the, the realist tragedy, in a sense that everyone acts aggressively out of a sense of defensiveness. 
you know, in that extended sense of the word, admittedly stretching the meaning of the words a little bit, they are engaged in crisis fighting, but that crisis fighting involves brinksmanship and huge risk and escalation. I don't think the Biden administration is steering headlong into actual conflict with China. I think they are involved in brinksmanship. They're trying to contain China. They know they have to run risks in doing so. They believe that in due course, they're going to be able to contain the challenge of, you know, of a rising Chinese regime and a huge surging Chinese economy by these kind of strategies. Coming up, the world that disappeared over just the last half century. This is Open Source. This is Open Source with Adam Tooze, the historian at Columbia University who writes, in effect, a daily diary on the world crisis. He calls it Chart Book. Adam Tooze, you're reminding me of a kicker line in your piece in the Financial Times. You wrote, what is characteristic of the current moment and symptomatic of the poly crisis is that the decisive actors in Russia, China, and the United States, the three great military powers, are all defining their positions as though their very identities were on the line. Exactly. That's kind of the situation, isn't it? No one is in a relaxed position that says, oh, yeah, you know, China's risen, but no real issue for America, right? That was the sort of relaxed position of the 90s and the early 2000s, the one in which China is positioned as Mm. what the Pentagon calls it, the pacing challenge, right? I mean, that's a very telling phrase, isn't it? The pacing challenge. And clearly, both Russia and China have chosen to define their situations in those terms, too. And there's almost, you know, if you think about the way in which the mood globally has turned against the likes of Angela Merkel, who exactly inhabited this kind of relaxed posture, which was, you know, Germany's fine and Germany will be fine. I'm not totally committed to Germany as such. You know, when she was asked famously what she thought, when she thought about her country, somebody said, what would you most closely identify it with? She said, well-insulated windows. <laughs> I mean, you could laugh at that or really appreciate the very relaxed attitude towards national identity that that exudes. Like, I'm not saying we're the greatest thing ever or have some manifest destiny. I'm just simply saying we're quite good at insulated windows. That mood is not just not the mood of the present, but in fact, you're suspect. I mean, Merkel now is in very, very bad odour. People are demanding that she make some sort of public apology for the positions of her government. And when she was quite defensive about it. With respect to Russian gas and oil. Policies towards Russia, fundamentally. So not being willing to recognise the situation as one of existential threat almost causes people to ask who you are, actually, you know, whether you can be trusted if you don't recognise the seriousness of the situation right now and the fundamental challenge, you know, that it poses and the need to rally the troops around the flag of take your pick, the Chinese project, the Russian project or whatever it is, Western democracy and freedom and so on, then maybe you're not really somebody that one can trust. Adam Tews, I picture you at work every day compiling a sort of 100-year epic sequel to your crackling history titled Deluge about U.S. entry into World War I and the birth of a new world order, which would have a more and more dominant USA in it. What is the full curve, as you imagine it, of this past century since the deluge? And where are we? (laughs) Chris, I wish I could finish that thought for you. (laughs) No, I mean, like, we don't know. I mean, the book I wrote after deluge was this book, Crashed, about the 2008 financial crisis. And And I always joke that, like, I embarked on that book under a misapprehension. Like, I embarked on this whole 
business now, which you're right, consumes me every day of trying to, as it were, make sense of the contemporary world on the assumption that around about 2012, 2013, with Obama's re-election and the stabilisation of the Eurozone, the great period of crisis that had begun in 2008 was over, believe mm. it or not. That's how prescient I was. I thought this was a wrap. And the story was of a kind of extension of the sort of stabilising mechanisms of Western power, which did emerge in their modern form around 1916, you know, into the 21st century. And obviously, you know, in, in 2016, 100 years on from that moment, things got very complicated for everyone with mm. the election of Donald Trump. So I think this is, for me, part of the utility of this phrase polycrisis is it signals the lack in the current moment of an organising grand narratives. That doesn't mean that we can't try and make sense of what's going on, right? There are certain strands here. I mean, many of us are committed to the idea that with the dawning of the climate problem and the environmental issue altogether, as it were, a new epoch was opened. And this is not something we discovered in the last 10 years, but was announced in the 1970s at the very latest, with Earth Day in the United States, and right. Club of Rome report. And, and so what we're living in now is, as it were, the 50-year epoch, which is now squarely coming into view. We're clearly living in a world which, though it still has a very powerful and quite dysfunctional United States in it, is now really radically multipolar. And that certainly is one of the challenges for our generations to truly wrap our heads around. Because, you know, in the early 1970s, it's astonishing to think, but the world's population was half what it is today. I couldn't believe that. That's my lifetime. Yes, it's amazing, isn't it? Incredible. We all know it, but really means that over the course of our lifetimes, world population has more than doubled. Yep. In the early 1970s, India and China were cripplingly poor countries. I mean, the vast majority of their population were living on... Mm one or two dollars a day. I mean, really abjectly poor. China had a lot of decent public infrastructure because of communism, but India really didn't. There was still a risk of very severe famine in large parts of the developing world, including, you know, India in the early 70s. The precise extent of that is disputed, but at least the risk was still there. That's the world that we were talking about then now, and we really are not in that world anymore. Hmm. The other thing is that in some senses, we know this, and everyone keeps saying it to each other, you know, we live in a globalised world and so on. But actually thinking that through and figuring out what that means and recognising the scale of what's going on, like Pakistan, for instance, the floods exactly. in Pakistan, people probably have even forgotten them, but like they inundated a third of the country. And Pakistan is the fifth largest country in the world in terms of population. Mm. A third of it disappeared underwater. This is staggering, right, in the scale of what's happening you think about the population dynamics of Africa, they are gigantic and completely unprecedented in history. You know, when the world of the 1970s was one in which, sure, India and China were poor and they were large. But that, in a sense, is human history as we've always known it, essentially, right? Eurasia is the densely populated part of the world with giant populations. And for much of history, India and China were the centre of commercial civilization and, and cultural development generally. The world that we're heading into in the 21st century is the one in which the African continent for the first time will be densely mm. populated. And that is just simply not a reality that anyone has even contemplated mm. before, right? So there are these huge dynamics underway that mean, indeed, that the pace of change is unprecedented, our frameworks for understanding it are really limited, the risks are huge. Mm. And our coping capacities are not zero because, indeed, we have avoided disaster, but certainly freeing. Come to the most vividly awful moment of the poly crisis. What are you looking for in Ukraine in this horrible war that may not ever end? You've written that you worry about Ukraine itself going bankrupt. 
running out of, of everything. Zizek worries that the neoliberals, actually world money, is going to buy up the most famous growing soil in the world. What are you seeing? I mean, on the one hand, we're seeing a military struggle, the likes of which we haven't seen in Europe since World War II. We are actually seeing a free-flowing, outcome-uncertain, existential struggle between two conventional military powers, you know, fighting military operations that look like they come out of the history books. Now, that sort of thing is something that has happened in the Middle East, you know, in the history since 1945, but never in Europe, outside Yugoslavia, where various stages of the Yugoslav civil war had features like this. But this is on a on a bigger and more sustained scale. And we are re-familiarizing ourselves with a sort of history where the outcome could be spectacular one way or the other. The cost is huge and we simply don't know how it's going to end. You know, I think it's unlikely at this point that the West will allow Ukraine to be defeated. Can they really drive home a victory against Russia? It's very unclear. Can a nuclear power like Russia actually be defeated in any conventional sense? Will it not be forced to escalate? And yes, in the background, much less you know, discussed than the events on the battlefield is the struggle to sustain the home front. And whereas Russia, though under sanction from the West, has been able to maintain its economy more or less intact, and in fact, in some respects, it's doing rather well out of the crisis it helped to produce, the same can't be said for Ukraine, where you see accelerating inflation, a government budget which can't be financed, surging unemployment, millions of people who are displaced, cities in large parts of the country which are in ruins, the whole thing, of course, under the pressure of Russian attack. I mean, you're looking at a scene of, of real socioeconomic crisis. Now, one shouldn't underestimate the Ukrainians. We've made that mistake before, right? It's possible that they can hold things together. But if there is a weak point in the Ukrainian war, it surely must be the home front and Ukrainian politics. And that, I think, is, is really where more attention is needed. These are not insuperable problems. The Ukrainians estimate they need about three to four billion dollars a month to sustain this war. That, by the standards of government spending from rich countries, is not a huge amount. The Americans have committed about half of this and are trying to put that on a long-term funding basis. The Europeans have said they'll do the same, but no one knows whether they can really trust the Europeans to deliver the amounts of money they promised. And if the Ukrainians don't get it, then they're going to be forced to make some very tough choices. Worst comes to the worst, they fund it by printing money that produces a spiral of devaluation and inflation. All of this is very familiar from wartime economics and none of it leads to a good place. You know, that's really a key issue. If we are looking at a protracted war, which runs, you know, into a second year, this will, I think, assert itself ever more, you know, as a dominant question. Can you understand or explain, Adam Tooze, why the parties are not talking to end this war? Oh, because peace is so difficult to make in a situation like this. I mean, it's... As if war wasn't hard to take every single day. Oh, but not to be cynical, but you have to be realistic about the stakes here. Precisely because war is painful and the sacrifices that have been made have been so intense and the emotions that have been aroused are so vivid and, and just awful. And the promise on both sides, you know, the promise on the Russian side and the promise on the Ukrainian side of what the war was supposed to deliver is so grandiose that then actually settling into real conversations with your enemy about the compromises that will be inevitably necessary to end this, it's almost impossible to do. I mean, this is where going back to World War One is quite instructive, not because the situation is the same, but because World War One, unlike World War Two, ended with negotiations. And just even talking about that 
is explosive. I mean, we know how we've seen it in American politics, and we're thousands and thousands of miles away, how difficult it is to articulate the thoroughly sensible position that maybe we ought to be talking about negotiations, what kind of accusations it exposes you to if you make that suggestion. Well, imagine that much closer to the battlefront. I mean, it's really, really difficult to do. In political terms, peace is much harder than continuing the war. Adam Tews, I learned stuff on your chart book just in the comments, including one quoting our friend George Beebe, who was the Russia analyst at the CIA on the staff of Vice President Dick Cheney. And he said, given the crisis, we, the United States, elected to make sure that the veto against NATO weapons in Ukraine and Ukraine in NATO, we elected to make sure that the veto was exercised on the battlefield, hoping that either Putin would stay his hand or that the military operation would fail. The point that the United States did not want to negotiate over NATO and Ukraine, Ukraine and NATO, over the table. They'd rather, they'd rather see it fought out on the battlefield. We passed up the transfer talks even before the war began. I don't think the United States or Europe wanted to see Ukraine in NATO. I mean, I think there were certain members of the Republican Party in the George Bush administration around 2008 that were pursuing that goal. I think both the Biden administration and, and certainly Berlin and Paris fully understood how risky it was. I think Ukrainian nationalists want Ukraine in NATO. And I think the Poles, the Baltic states, some of the Scandinavians fancied Ukraine in NATO. But that was not the position of the truly powerful voices in NATO as an organization. That didn't stop Ukraine continuously pushing and a minority, a vocal minority in NATO wanting to continuously open the door to them. But that's not where this was headed beforehand. This is the extent to which I think the Mersheimer critique is absolutely valid, which is that we were you know, leading Ukraine down a primrose path. Because how can Ukraine not want to join NATO? If you're a you know, Ukrainian patriot, of course you want that. And how can the Poles and the Baltics not want Ukraine in as well? You can understand why they do. But for obvious reasons, it was always going to be highly provocative to the Russians, and it was an escalation. And we also knew that we were not going to put boots on the ground. And on the assumption that we had prior to this war, namely that Russia had overwhelming military superiority and would know how to use that to crush Ukraine, it seemed particularly you know, dangerous and irresponsible to encourage Ukraine in the belief that it could ultimately join and thereby to provoke Russia into potentially acting against Ukraine. The actual situation is even more kind of conflicted and, and unexpected because it turns out the Ukrainians have the capacity to resist and Russia does not have the capacity to submit, to subdue them. And that has opened up an entirely new range of options. And clearly, at some point, the Biden administration and the American security establishment decided it was worth taking the risk to back Ukraine in its defense and to thereby deliver a humiliating reverse to Russia. I don't think even they imagined how humiliating it would be. Mm. And so now we're in a third mm. situation, which is exactly how far are we going to go with this? And the balancing act that the West is performing, and above all this falls on the US because it's only the US that can really supply the sort of weapons that would really allow Ukraine to reach out into Russian territory and you know, escalate the war in that direction. But that is now the... That is now the third stage that we're at, is like, how far are we willing to go in in inflicting a humiliating defeat on Russia? Frustration was one thing, a defeat is another. And I think that's the decision problem now. Of course, in the mm. meantime, with Ukraine having performed this miracle and public opinion having been stirred in the way that it has, 
the prospects of Ukraine's NATO membership and EU membership, indeed, are, are completely transformed. How that will be handled, how it will be handled as part of an ultimate peace settlement, we mm. haven't really begun to seriously discuss yet, because that problem is so difficult to broach in the middle of an actual conflict. Adam Tews, back to the 100 years since the deluge and World War I, are there other source points of the polycrisis that leap out for you in that century? We've touched on the environmental problematic, which I think is gathering steam all the time. There are deep tensions within the democratic systems of the West, which you know we struggle to contain. Democracy is always an ongoing problem. You know, China's rise is in some yes. senses the hub of everything, right? Because it drives the environmental problem now. It poses for the first time in a while the fundamental challenge in terms of system of governance. It poses a challenge to the US-led security system in East Asia, the place where essentially the West can never claim to have won the Cold War. You know, we didn't win in Korea. We didn't win in Vietnam and, and China in 1989 indicated quite clearly what, you know, the intention of the Communist Party to remain absolutely in power. So I think that's really the arena. It was on the cards, you could say, that in the early 20th century. Everyone already knew at that point that China was the sleeping giant. And the question of how China's 20th century history would work out was really going to be one of the decisive questions of the century. And so it has proven, right? But now, of course, with an extraordinarily powerful national communist-led regime having emerged, that's another key element of the situation. Cast Joe Biden in the span of the century toward the end. Also Bidenomics, which might have been his biggest leap toward a Rooseveltian standing. Well, I mean, Biden really is a 20th century figure in the 21st century. I mean, that that in and of itself is a remarkable feature of American politics in the current moment is its geritocratic quality, right? I mean, Nancy Pelosi's dad voted for Lend-Lease the first time round. That's in <laughs> 1941. Joe Biden, you know, was a witness to Kennedy's inauguration. I mean, we are talking about people who are indeed 20th century figures still with a grip on power in the 21st century. Yes, I mean, Rooseveltian analogies come to mind, which again is quite astonishing in some respects. There are not very many other polities in the world in which, you know, affirming references to the 1930s are of the order of the day. I believe she recently took an, an inner cadre of the party to visit the Yan'an base camp to which Mao's long march eventually took him at the time of the New Deal. So, I mean, this is an unusual feature, but, you know, that kind of comment aside, there was indeed a moment early on in the Biden administration where I think under the influence of the Green New Deal left, the Biden administration envisioned economic and social policy, environmental policy, the rally against China as a, a total package. And that, of course, has been shredded by the pressures of congressional politics, by the the circumstances of the, you know, the price and inflation shock of 2021. And uh, not all that much is left of that comprehensive agenda at this point. That doesn't mean to say they haven't proved capable of passing legislation somewhat, you know, to their own surprise, I think. I mean, if you listen to people on the inside of the, say, you know, Chuck Schumer's team, they'll tell you, quite frankly, how amazed they were by their ability to get the Inflation Reduction Act done. But nevertheless, yes, the policy has come out, but the policy that's emerged eventually doesn't feel very New Deal-y. It feels like a kind of a new version of rather nationalist industrial policy 
That's what mm. congressional politics will give you at this point. And better to have that than nothing at all. But it's not the Biden economics agenda of 2021. Coming up, a lightning round from the election bomb in Brazil to the test coming up for Bidenomics. This is Open Source. I don't want to miss saying, Adam Tooze, that we marvel at your chart book and we can't imagine how you keep it coming with all that fresh stuff. This is the lightning round. Speak of the strongman Bolsonaro and his defeat in Brazil this week. The left restored. What does that tell you? I mean, it's fantastic news. Best bit of political news in a long time. Maybe since, you know, Biden's election, Brazil is a huge piece of the global puzzle because it's a vast country. It should matter in American politics much more than it does. Latin America should matter in American politics more than it does. This is our neighbourhood. We should care and not in the patronising sense of the Caribbean policy of old, but because these are our neighbours and share many of our problems. Amazonia is critical to the global climate story and Lula's politics are progressive and important in that respect. The fly in the ointment, the reservation here, of course, is that his victory margin is tiny, apparently going to be respected, maybe if not by Bolsonaro himself, then at least by Bolsonaro's team, who have moved much more quickly than their Republican analogues in the United States to recognize the outcome and with commendable quickness, in fact. The entire Brazilian electoral process is commendable. I mean, this is a huge country of middle income, and yet they managed to get the results out in a matter of hours. I mean, minutes indeed, really. Yeah, and we forget, by the way, how much like us it is in grandeur, in size, in history, in a slavery history, uh, in population, in talent. Yeah, no, it's really a very, America should regard it as much more close analog, and should learn lessons from its electoral system. But... You know, Lula won by a tiny margin. So this is not going to be the Lula of the early 2000s. This is going to be a Lula chained, if you like, by a much more precarious political situation. And this is, nor is this the upbeat Brazil of the early 2000s, right? History keeps moving on. These stories repeatedly shift. And if Brazil in the early 2000s was sort of supercharged by, you know, the story of rapid economic growth and development, Um, He's going to be operating against a much tougher backdrop this time round because the years since 2014 in Brazil, you know, it's not exactly quite a lost decade, but it comes pretty close in terms of economic growth. It's a tougher story. Speaking of political collapse, say what you will, Adam Tooze, about the collapse of English politics. Four prime ministers in four years. Do we know what Liz Truss got so completely wrong and what's ahead with a British Indian prime minister? It looks like chaos to a world that was ruled by Britain a century ago. Yeah, I mean, people were joking that taken together, the United States and Britain right now are making a pretty bad advert for the British Empire and its offshoots. I mean, it it clearly is a humiliating collapse. I mean, it was an accident waiting to happen. The British Tory party has been an accident waiting to happen for decades now. It's a moribund, inward-looking, incestuous, self-satisfied, privileged you know, group. It's hard to call them an elite. And I mean, I was tempted, but it really doesn't make any sense. They aren't. They've been accustomed to power for too long. Both Truss and Quartig had never been in opposition. They just took power and assumed they could do whatever they liked. They were also lulled into believing that because the Tory right got away with Brexit, that there was really no economic pressure that would be too strong that would force them to change direction. And they were proved differently, thanks in part to the Bank of England, which unlike in 2016, when the Bank of England cushioned the outcome of the Brexit referendum, this time around, the the Bank of England really did not provide them with any protection in the financial markets. And so it was a humiliating flare out. What we're stuck with now, I think, is a damage limitation exercise. I think 
The Tories will exploit the flexibility provided to them by Britain's bizarre constitution. They can put off, you know, holding an election till the last minute, and they will hope that Labour's huge margin uh, of superiority fades with time. But um, Labour is being run by a leadership right now, which is nothing if not predictable, solid, stolid, some would say. So, you know, maybe they can preserve that margin. And if they do, sometime in the not too distant future, the Tories will suffer again by the logic of the British Mm. electoral system and absolutely devastating electoral defeat because it's a first-past-the-post-Westminster-style system and on their current polling, they are just wiped out as a political force. Adam, inflation will be the deciding issue one way or the other in our own elections next week. You've really leaned on it as a mega issue into the future. We are going from a low-interest regime year-to-year into a high-interest regime, a cost-of-living crisis, you say. Spell that out. And what's to be done about it? Among the central bankers who seem to have no tool but rising interest rates, what could be done? It is a conjuncture we did not expect. I mean, just over a year ago, we were still in a world where everyone assumed that inflation was a non-problem. In fact, lowflation was our problem, which is why both the Fed and the ECB changed their operating rules to account for this. I'm still actually a skeptic with regards to you know, inflation as such becoming a really long-term problem. I I am team transitory, just in, you know, in honesty. Hmm. People mock that position now, but I actually think the overwhelming evidence is that the rate of inflation has turned and is beginning to come down. Core inflation is is being stubborn, but I think it will happen in due course. To get there, however, will require a period of relatively high interest rates or the central banks will feel they really have no alternative. One would wish they had other instruments. And in a bygone era, they could have done things like you know, steering or trying to restrict credit provision by banks. They'll do that indirectly by, by quantitative tightening. The, the question is right now whether or not the financial markets can withstand that kind of pressure. And that is the conversation that's going on around the world, I think. The phrase is, will something break as interest rates go up? But why this matters is it changes the circumstances, it changes the context for every other decision, for business investment, for private borrowing, consumer debt and public expenditure and public interest burdens. And so what appears like a rather technical, abstract kind of high level issue is going to change the parameters within which every single one of those decisions is made. And we have to worry, apart from you know the threat of something so-called breaking, in other words, a new financial crisis, we have to worry about the prospects of a, a recession, not perhaps a disastrous recession, but nevertheless a dramatic slowdown and unemployment rather than staying at its remarkably low level now, you know, heading in the American case above 5%, uh, which particularly for those at the, the bottom end of the labour market will come as a very severe blow. And that's, I think, the main reason for worrying and why in Europe the talk is all of a cost of living crisis, which I think is in some ways a more promising way of talking about the problem, which is that low income households lose both ways, right? They lose as a result of the rising cost of living. And they also lose because they are the people who are last in and first out of, of jobs when the labour market tightens. And so that, I think, needs to be the principal you know, target for our concern. And uh, progressive politics or progressive economic politics would focus on that segment of society, those people first and foremost, rather than overall the macroeconomic balance, which I regard with, you know, a fair degree of equanimity. I know this is views not shared, you know, and, and very prominent, very, very expert macroeconomists, the likes of Larry Summers are extremely anxious about the later rate of inflation 
I think they're over-egging it, but the mm. social crisis, the cost of living crisis, and the threat of unemployment is very real and needs to be taken extremely seriously. Can I say, I would list the public conversation as one of the constituent elements of the poly crisis. People don't believe the news anymore. They're addicted mm. to Twitter, and Elon Musk is not going to improve it. Nobody believes much of anything, and they don't talk the downside of stories, even the Ukraine war, I think. What is to be done about what feels like the isolation of serious talk, the infantilization of popular talk, the TikTokification of our conversation? Yeah, I mean, I don't feel terribly well-placed to really give you advice on all your listeners. I'm in the position that I'm in. I'm entirely consumed by a debate, which I completely agree is like the very most occupies a few hundred thousand people in a giant country, right? But um, TikTok seems to me, a lot of people have said to me that I ought to try TikTok. They say it to me too. <laughs> For instance, book TikTok is a huge thing. And, you know, any medium in which people are enthusiastically and in a short and punchy way recommending books to each other can't be a bad thing. Right. So I remain at that level a kind of chronic optimist. Um, but in part, I think, because I don't, sports is the only thing which causes me to watch television. I have very little exposure to the large scale public channels of, of communication. And I, and I mean, it's not my natural medium. It's not the water that I swim in. And I'm not necessarily the voice that would be appropriate or, or particularly welcome in that space. So, you know, as somebody concerned with democracy, I think it's, of course, a profound issue. And I mean, I'm too much of a European in the sense that fundamentally, I believe that there's no really good answer for this other than public broadcasting of different types. You know, public media outlets are the only way to anchor this, because if you leave this to commerce and the free flow of private opinions, it, it cannot go well. It hasn't gone well historically. It's not going well now. There's nothing particularly novel about this, which is why, you know, European democracies always anchor themselves in a solid public broadcasting platform, which then can morph onto the internet and become a major crossover platform in that way. Think about the way in which the iPlayer works for the BBC. And in that sense, I think America was always to a degree a lost cause. But it's a lost cause which I benefit from, inhabit, and part of, and which still has important corners, like your own show, like you know the, the thousands and thousands of extraordinarily valuable media outlets that there are out there that really do sustain still a very vibrant public life. Different question. You write about profiteering in your chart book this week, amid grave worries about grain shortages, hunger, yeah. starvation coming. The grain trade giants, it turns out, are banking huge profits, not to mention the oil industry, Saudis most of all. What, what does this tell us? Well, if you've got some kind of a grip on a monopoly like that in a situation like this, you are going to rake it in. I mean, this is Ricardian economics, right? I mean, this we've known since the operation of global markets began that these kind of logics play out. So if you are like the Saudis sitting on the world's largest collection of cheap oil, then you in this current conjuncture just mint it, right? The same with the food situation. We have this conglomerate of basically four major global grade traders that dominate this world scene. The very least we need is the, is the oxygen of publicity and control. Not control is probably something that escapes us, but at least public exposure of the way in which they operate and the way in which their margins increase in situations like this. The logistics and the infrastructure they provide, without that, the, the global economy couldn't function. 
but it is indeed an alarming aspect of this current situation. There is no, you went immediately to starvation. That is a matter of politics, right? Because uh, there's plenty of food in the world to feed everyone. If, if it doesn't reach uh, everyone, and if there are tens of millions of people who will find themselves going hungry and at risk of outright starvation, that's because we haven't made sure that purchasing power is available to everyone, even for these essentials. And that's, you know, that's on politics, that's on global governance. And what, what does it tell you that Putin withdrew from the grain shipping teamwork with Ukraine? That he didn't like having his navy attacked in Crimea. <laughs> I mean, it's a simple answer to that. I mean, that's what triggered that move on his part, right, is this bold typically adventurous Ukrainian assault on his navy with newfangled you know, maritime drones, and they, they went after the Russians. And the Russians have suffered another embarrassing, you know, humiliating blow, and they, they need to strike back. I mean, that's the tit for tat. But it's clear that Russia has no compunction in using the leverage that it has in the Black Sea to, to raise pressure, but it's using every means at its disposal. This is what a state does when it's when it's seriously under pressure in a war like this. And it's been a while since we've really lived that reality. You know, the miracle of miracles is that a substantial flow of gas still continues through pipelines that run from Russia to Europe by way of Ukraine. You know, to fight a war like this in a still deeply globalized economy is a produces some very twisted situations. Last question. You ask, what is the outlook? And you sort of answer... The more successful we are at coping, if we get successful at it, the more the tension builds. If you've found the past few years stressful and disorienting, if your life has already been disrupted, it's time to brace. Our tightrope walk with no end is only going to become more precarious and nerve-wracking. It's a terrible way to end a conversation, but is it real? I fear so, yeah. Can we take it? I don't know. And we will, we, I mean, you know, brace is shorthand for some pretty serious, I think, reflection on what it is going to take. You know, in social policy terms, we, you know, invented a bunch of support mechanisms that saw us through the COVID crisis. I'm talking about that kind of thing at one level. And at the other kind of level, you know, we have a generation of kids who now are growing up with the kind of apocalyptic fears that haunted our generations that grew up during the Cold War in new forms, right? That is going to be part of this reality. I think the challenge is also to speak frankly about this and to speak frankly about its implications, right. not in the kind of lighthearted way that says, oh, well, you know, you need to be ready for disruption all the time and flexible in every respect imaginable. All of that kind of, you know, kind of rather brutal, simplistic, you know, market economic neoliberal talk of the 80s and 90s, which simply relished this. I think we do have to take this more seriously as an emotional and personal challenge. But I do think it is our challenge. I mean, just think about the disruption that we experience with COVID. We all know perfectly well that there are more pandemics where that one came from, and they, they may be much worse in future. And so, you know, a, a future might look more like the horrifying reality that the Chinese are now living through with the zero COVID policies that were adopted in Shanghai earlier this year and have shut down this giant Foxconn factory with the workforce fleeing in panic over the last couple of days. You know, that, that could very well be our reality in the future, unless, unless we take the necessary precautions and really embrace this as a reality we have to deal with and prepare for in the most intelligent ways we can possibly manage, which would, for instance, require us to be heavily investing in vaccines and the fifth and sixth and seventh wave of vaccines that will, necess will be necessary to minimise the risk of you know, further bad COVID mutations and so on. So, 
yeah, I'm afraid. I think it's as it's. Uh, it just seems irresponsible not to face the facts of our experience of the last couple of years. What do your students tell you? Are they up to it? Are they depressed? Are they angry? Are they angry at us? Range of experiences, to be honest. I have a daughter who's a senior in college right now, and and she is not as resentful and furious as I would have anticipated her perhaps being, given that you know. A, a good 30 to 40% of her college experience was ruined by this, you know, that which she, she strained and worked so hard for in all those years in high school. And then she got to college and within nine months, they were sent home again, right? So, I mean, it's disastrous for young people. I think they are more realistic, however, more adaptive in that sense. And I do see very considerable energy, you know, mobilizing to face this world. And, and they at least have had, you know, an early exposure to the sorts of risks and challenges that lie ahead. But I, for the young people, I, I am, I mean, extremely concerned. I mean, for well-equipped, privileged college students, less than for the vast majority of the world's young people who have simply lost years of education effectively and thereby are, are robbed of the one thing that really is going to be their asset going forward, which is human capital, which is education. Right? That's what they most need. And that has been jeopardized. And, and that needs to be a huge priority, building resilient education systems that will function in the face of the kind of shocks that we've faced. Extending that all the way down, ensuring that we don't have just spiraling structures of inequality where the, the worst off and the most precarious are most severely impaired in their ability to get the, you know, the resources and the education and training they need to cope. And remedially, you know, to make good the damage that was done. Education in the poly crisis, too. Adam Toos, you are a powerful blast of strong talk. I think it's safe to say we believe you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Adam Toos's books include The Deluge, Crashed, and shut down. His newsletter on Substack is called Chartbook. You've just heard a new installment of In Search of Monsters, continuing our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org or at their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. And look for an additional short conversation there and also on our site that I'll be having in the world of the Quincy Institute each week of this series. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of smart, independent podcasters. Another Hub and Spoke podcast is Subtitle a show about languages and the people who speak them. The latest episode is about the intimate relationship that music has played in the evolution of Black American English, from Cab Calloway's Hepster Dictionary to Kendrick Lamar. It's the second in a three-part series. Find it at subtitlepod.com.